Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week, recorded live at the Stoke Newington Literary Festival, it's the Eagles of Book Podcasting. With Andy Miller of Backlisted, Carrie Plitt and Octavia Bright of Literary Friction, and very occasionally, Robin Ince of Robin and Josie's Book Shambles. Thanks everybody for coming, we've got a, a fantastic crowd. So I'm Neil Denny, I produce and present a podcast about books called Little Atoms. Immediately to my right is Octavia Bright, Andy Miller and Carrie Plitt at the end. And at some point in the proceedings, we're going to be joined by Robin Ince, who had a gig in Somerset this afternoon at lunchtime and about only about 50 minutes ago texted me to say he'd, his train had just left Bath. So, fingers crossed, he is going to turn up and he's said that we can text him, live text him questions if we want to as well. <laughs> so that's always an option, but we'll see. So Robin might turn up for the last few minutes. Um, so we all present book podcasts, that's the point of this thing, um, but rather self-indulgently, if you're expecting us to talk about podcasting, like, you know, our favourite microphones and things like that, we're not going to do that, because, what? no, sorry, if you've prepared that, Andy, that's not what's going to happen, um, because what we, what we normally do, to a greater or lesser extent, is talk to other people about books, so I thought it'd be nice for us to have the opportunity to talk ourselves about books, and that's what we're going to do. I'll sort of moderate the thing, it'll just be a bit of a rambly conversation, but before I do that, I'm going to ask our other guests to introduce themselves, and I guess more specifically their podcast. So I'm Octavia Bright, quite intimidated by this microphone. Um, I co-host a podcast called Literary Friction with Carrie, and the format is we go once a month, we have a theme, and we interview an author normally about something that's just been published, and then we talk about other stuff to do with the theme um, and uh, it's great you should listen to it you can find us yeah. we play out on NTS radio as well here it's in great. music it is great NTS radio uh, uh, online music uh, station and we're one of the few talk shows that they have so you can find us on their website we've got a website in the making at the moment and I'm also I also write but I don't have a book for sale at the back unfortunately not yet <laughs> I co-host Literary Friction. Octavia <laughs> has introduced it very well. My name's Carrie Plitt. And um, I don't really have anything else to say besides the fact that I'm also a literary agent. So I think that in some ways informs my views about books. You can decide for yourself. Hello, everyone. Uh, my name's Andy Miller. I am the author of a book called The Year of Reading Dangerously. Thanks for coming out, everyone. I I'm also the co-host of a podcast called Backlisted, uh, 
with uh, my old friend John Mitchinson, um, who couldn't be here today and is secretly quite annoyed that I'm doing this without him. <laughs> uh, and when he listens to this, he'll be even more annoyed to hear me saying that. <laughs> Sorry, John. Um, and we, on Backlisted, we focus on books, as the name suggests, from the backlist. Uh, neglected classics, often. We do cover new books as well, but um, we've been going for about six months, and we've talked about books such as Lolly Willows by Sylvia Townsend Warner, and we have covered uh, 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 B.S. Johnson. Uh, we have covered... Bert Fegg's Nasty Book for Boys and Girls by Michael Palin and Terry Jones. Uh, so we're pretty much open to anything, fiction or non-fiction. And um, I think we, we love the freedom of the podcast and the fact that... Uh, you can swear. You can swear. <laughs> you can be enthusiastic without having to be clever with it. Uh, you can be relatively rude, uh, uh, but we try not to be. So, yeah, it's great fun, uh, and you should listen to it. You should also listen to Little Atoms. Yeah, I just realised I didn't do myself. And <laughs> you can be enthusiastic without being clever with it. It's probably a really good tagline for Little Atoms. Um, it's been going for over 10 years now and also broadcasts on Resonance FM. Um, it's about, it started off originally as sort of a podcast about popular science, hence the name, which is sort of vaguely loose to that. Um, but then over the years it developed into just being about anything because I got bored of popular science, basically. Um, and last year... Most importantly, I say, because they're at the back on the desk, we became, we think, by, judging by the tiny bit of research that we've done, we became the first podcast to launch a print magazine. Um, I said, we think, we're not sure, there probably is another one, but, but who knows? So, so that's Little Atoms. So what I want us to talk about, first of all, is basically great books. So things like what makes a great book, what we think is a great books, classic books that we might not have read. And I think what's interesting here is, as I've established, Octavia's doing a PhD, Andy, as well as being a writer, used to work in publishing and book selling, and Carrie is a literary agent. So I think, with those hats on, what would you all think were classic books? Well, what makes a classic book? Yeah, well, let's talk about what makes a classic book. Shall I go first? Go yes, please. Um, yeah, you should be thinking, <laughs> <Go>. be thinking. <laughs> um, I actually, I, I've got a head start on this because I did a panel event last year about what makes a classic book. It's more than a start. So, so that's why I'm giving you time because I know what the answer to this one is. We decided that the, what makes a classic book is often a combination of um, readability, uh, critical approval or critical disapproval, uh, a certain amount of time. It's probably too soon to say uh, that there are there any books published in the 21st century are classics. You may, oh, there's a little intake of breath there. You may disagree. I, th I think it's too soon to say. I think, and I also, the other thing I think about that, that what makes a classic is it's probably a book that was controversial when it was first published. So a book that was successful when it was first published, commercially successful it could be, or something that is, you know, um, scandalous when it's first published. Um, the book that springs to my mind is um, American Psycho by... Brett Easton Ellis. I think that has earned the right to be called a classic, first of all because it's a very good book, second of all because it sums up a particular era uh, looking back, but also I remember I was a bookseller when um, American Psycho was first published and we tend to forget that that book was really shocking and controversial when it first appeared and we had a staff meeting 
1991 at uh, Waterstones in Brighton uh, over where in the shop we should keep American Psycho. <laughs> should it be behind the counter so you had to ask for it? Should it be on the top shelf? Should it be on a front table or what? And I think if you'd said back then that people would consider American Psycho to be a classic, uh, they'd probably say, well, don't be ridiculous, it's just, you know, it's gratuitously violent and horrible and it's just been done for the money. But actually, I think with the benefit of hindsight, that's not the case. It's brilliant, but wonderful. How many people have read American Psycho? See, that's a really good turnout, isn't it, for American Psycho? How many people like American Psycho? <laughs> Everybody Watch likes those it. Do you, do you think that books published now still have that ability to shock? You could argue that it's, it's very hard to be controversial now. Yeah, I so think maybe, it is. I think it is. It's also coincided with a time in which every book that comes out is an instant classic. I, especially mm. as someone who works in the book industry, mm. you see a tagline every single day about instant classics. So... And, and also, I think the word classic is very connected to an establishment idea of what books should be and how mm. they should be read. Mm. Yeah. And maybe classic isn't going to be as an important a term because it necessarily makes the, your view of books and what they should be and how they should be read much less broad. Well, this is what I, what I was going to ask. So, October next week, so you're the academic. So, once upon a time, there was a, you know, a, a <laughs> canon of books that were dictated by dead white men who oh, said these um, are like great mm-hmm. books. And now that's not doesn't really exist anymore. Obviously, the canon does exist, but it's not so acceptable for somebody to sit in, a, in an ivy tower and dictate what a classic is. So, how will we decide which 21st century books? Oh, in the end. I think it's going to be about being era-defining, you know? I think um, mm. the canon... I mean, postmodernism happened, which meant the canon got smashed out of the water, and it's still something to refer to, of mm-hmm. course, and it's actually fascinating to look at different periods and see what was canonical then, because the canon, it does shift and change a little bit. I mean, I should say I'm in a Spanish department, so my canon is different from, you know, if you'd studied English or whatever. But I think, yeah, classics, I think there's a big distinction, first of all, to be drawn between a great and a classic, mm-hmm. personally. So what Obviously, is that distinction? great has two meanings. Great, or great, huge. Um, and I think a great book you could have, I think you could say contemporary literature, there are some greats in very contemporary literature, but I agree with, with what Andy says about mm. classics being something related to a timeless mm-hmm. past. For me, a classic... Um, yeah, it's, it relates to canonical ideas, but also I would say like The Great Gatsby is a classic because it's a perfect time piece, era piece, mm. you know. Or um, War and Peace is a classic because it it nails an era, you know, yeah. really specifically. And actually, American Psycho nails an era yeah. really yeah. specifically. But I think the most fun to have is to is to screw the classics completely. And, and pick and choose them as you want, but I, I personally have a real reaction against kind of book lists and, you know, you must have read all of these things, otherwise you're not erudite. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's nonsense. I think you should read for joy and pleasure. Carrie, as a... I'll come back to you in a sec. As a... <laughs> with an agent's hat on, mm. when you're looking for, for new authors, when you're looking at manuscripts... Is there any thought to, to how a book might last, or is it all really, I guess, about the bottom line? In the I end? don't know. I, to be perfectly honest, I, classic is not really in my mind. It's, it's does this... 
I think there are very, very few very lucky literary agents who are going to pick out a mm -hmm. classic. If we think about the number of books that are published now versus what we would all say were classics in the history of literature, it's a very, very small amount of books. So, no, that's not really on my mind. It's more like, is this exciting to read? Mm -hmm. um, do I forget that I'm doing work and start feeling like I'm having fun or feeling some, some, some emotional response to this or feeling pleasure? Um, and it, it sort of relates to what Octavia is saying about joy, that I, as someone who's looking for books that I think the public might want to read, I'm much less concerned in some ways about ideas and theories and themes and much more concerned about is is this a wonderful book to read and that mm -hmm. ranges from something that's much more commercial to something that's more literary Andy uh, no I was just I, I was just um, thinking you know if you work in the book industry for a while these terms do start to dance before your eyes and then just vanish uh, like classic I don't even I, cla I find it hard with classic like this the the category the category of a lost classic which is a thing that publishers have discovered in recent years, that yeah, they really yeah. How many people? One, yeah. How many people here have read a novel called Stoner? I couldn't. Everyone here has read Stoner. Yeah. You're listening, yeah. right? And and you know, and it was and it was marketed by the uh, Penguin Random Group as a lost classic. That it was this incredible lost novel that. And I read it. I thought this is you know this is good. It's good, but in a world where there are books by Updike or Bellow or Roth. To read. Totally disagree with you, Derek. All great. the dudes. <laughs> also, also great. All the dudes there. All the dudes. Yeah, but also, you know, the idea that it was being placed in that category, yeah, yeah. right? I agree. I, I didn't finish it. I found it. You didn't finish it. No, no, I didn't like. I didn't. I, I didn't enjoy it. it at all. I, I thought. I, I thought it had so much more meaning and emotion than I keep saying emotion. I don't know why, but um, <laughs> than than Bello or Roth. Okay. What about? Um, <laughs> what about? Uh, <laughs> Uh, but, um, okay, that's a lost classic, but like, you know... Uh, I, d I don't disagree. I think lost classic is just a marketing... Yeah, yeah. I really liked yeah. it when Morrissey had his autobiography published as a Penguin classic. Yeah. <laughs> I genuinely, I thought that was really funny and witty uh, thing to do, but book world people got their knickers in such a twist about it. Like, oh, Morrissey, bringing the well, reputation of Penguin classics into disrepute... Penguin Classics is a marketing category, isn't it? It's not like a, a, a moral stance. <laughs> it's a bit of the bookshop. Um, well, we're going to come back. I want to talk about Lost Classics in a slightly different angle. But first of all, I asked Robin Inns um, what makes a classic book. And Robin's response was, ornate binding and a Reader's Digest condensed edition. <laughs> <laughs> so... <laughs> Good. The Lost Classics from a slightly different angle. So, Andy Backlisted is specifically about books that are out of print or somehow underregarded or disregarded or forgotten. Yeah. So, aren't some of those books Lost Classics? Um, yes, they are. Uh, let me let me think for a moment. I'm telling you what. I tell you what's happened with us recently. We did a we did a book on backlist called All the Devils Are Here mm. by David Seabrook. I don't know how many people have heard of that that book. Um, it's a wonderful, wonderful book. It's a book about East Kent, uh, Chatham, Rochester, Broadstairs, places like that. 
It's a very peculiar... Ian Sinclair said in his review of it in the um, LRB, he said, David Seabrook gives the reader an ear-bashing he will never forget. <laughs> and it is like being buttonholed by a madman for 150 pages. It's absolutely wonderful. So Rachel Cook, the, the Observer journalist Rachel Cook, wanted to talk about that book. And uh, so she came on and she talked about the book uh, you know, you could buy copies. It's out of print, you could buy, but you could buy it on ebook. You could buy copies for 20p via Amazon Marketplace or A-Books. And within weeks of us doing the podcast and Rachel uh, talking about it in The Observer, uh, the cheapest copy you can buy online of that book is now £95. Wow. Which is a weird kind of mixture of supply, demand and algorithms. I don't think, you know, I would, I would love more people to read All the Devils Are Here by David Seabrook. I'm really proud that they want to. But you'd have to be insane to pay £95 for it, you know. What about you? Do you find there's any, Neil, do you find there's an effect when you talk about a book? Well, apparently so. I mean, publishers keep coming back, so they seem to think there is. And I think there definitely is. I mean, Little Atoms sells books. I think there's no doubt about that. But when you talk about selling books, one of the things that really surprised me in getting into books is the fact that I don't think that many people know that people just don't really sell that many books anyway. So a lot of the books that we cover on Little Atoms that might be like non-fiction books might sell like six or 700 copies or something. Yeah. And I think if people hearing it on my podcast sells 20 more copies, then that's considered like a significant, mm. a significant thing to do. Yeah, I remember... Um reading like years, years ago when, when Nicholson Baker's first novel was published, the American writer Nicholson Baker, his first, his first book is called The Metzening The Metzening, mm. right? And uh, those of you who are old enough to remember this will remember that it got masses of media coverage, it was in the, yeah, right, it, got, it was in the, all the broadsheet newspapers, got incredible reviews was on TV, was on the radio was on everywhere, and this is 25 years ago when supposedly people bought more books it sold 3,000 copies in hardback. Wow. Three of, of the best-reviewed book of the year. And those figures, for various reasons, have shrunk in the last 10 years. Mm. So what you say is absolutely right. You mm. know, the, the, do you find, Octavia, that when you talk about a book... Because you talk about with... Sometimes you talk about new books as well, don't you? Yeah, I mean, we have absolutely enormous uh, reach and influence. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Massive. Um, I have absolutely no idea, but we, we like to, you know, it would be nice if someone went out and bought the book of someone we spoke to. We, we interview authors that we respect and that we, we, you know, support and are into their work, so... Um, but I was just thinking, Carrie always says, you know, when, with agents taking on new authors, they always say, don't quit your day job, mm -hmm. because the career of, as an author is not really viable anymore, yeah. because of precisely yeah. that, you know, you're not going to make, unless you write a bestseller. My dad's been on at me to write a bestseller under a pseudonym. <laughs> He's like, if you do that, you can sort me out has for he, my old age. Has he got any ideas? Um, well, he was like, come on, you should write a thriller where it's like a young woman, academic, and she's like, taking people out. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and uh, I'm, yeah. I'll give it a go. Well, I'll finish my thesis first. Let's stop there for a minute, because we're going to come back to that later on, about you know, the my idea of, of selling yeah. <laughs> a, a, a best-selling right. thriller, and you know, how that's not actually as, as easy as everybody thinks it is. <laughs> Um, but I, I, one of the, the books that was on um, Little Atoms recently was uh, DJ Taylor's book, The Prose Factory, which is about the sort of history of the, the British literary scene in the 20th century. 
And like a thing that kept popping up through that would be like, here's a writer, I can't remember any examples, unfortunately, but you know, here's a writer who in 1940 was like, you know, quarter of a million best-selling novelist, everybody was really into it, everybody loved it, he had like a ma- massive career. And I'm like thinking, I've never heard of this person, you know, it's like, yeah. is this true, is this a spoof, that name's just completely dropped out of history. Why does that happen? Let's, um, Carrie, let's, uh, let's start with you on that. Why, does, why do massively popular writers go out of favour in such a way? Yeah, well, I think it has something to do, coming back to this idea of the classic, the classics are a very mutable list, mm-hmm. and they have to do much more with what we perceive to be important than what people in the day that they were writing perceived to be important. So one of the exciting things about classics is we, you know, we collectively might have the power to make something a classic. You might have the power, Mm -hmm. Andy, especially with what you're doing. And I suppose it it probably, I think writers fall out of favor all the time. I think that's especially true. We have some people leaving. (laughs) 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 Goodbye. Um, I think that's especially true with comedy, actually, um, where comedy is so much harder to maintain a sort of dialogue with yeah. future generations. Mm. And, um, but I think there will be authors like that who do come back into fashion eventually. But then people are still reading you know, P.G. Woodhouse and stuff. Obviously people can write comedy that sort of transcends age, but you are, you're absolutely right. I think it's definitely something that dates really, really quickly. But that comes back to the, the idea of it being a cultural artifact as yeah. well. You know, P.G. Woodhouse is a really good example of just a window, a portal into a time that we can be nostalgic about. And I think nostalgia plays into this as well, the idea of what becomes a classic and what doesn't. Like, what do people find themselves mm. drawn back to? Mm-hmm. And, and what Carrie was saying about the pleasure of reading as well. I don't think there are... Actually, no, that's complete rubbish. There are some unreadable classics. That is true for sure. But um, I don't know. I was thinking, yeah, about the idea of writers falling out. I mean, obviously, what universities decide to put on their undergraduate BA courses reading lists, that has something to do with making classics mm. because you'll find BA departments across, you know... English departments across the United Kingdom, for example, will have, they'll be engaging with the concept of a canon in classical literature. And I would imagine, you know, let's say Oxford put one on their thing, then suddenly UCL might look up and think, oh, we should put Andy's book on our uh, classic literature list. <laughs> I'll quote you on that. <laughs> I think it's, it also has to do with the fact that books take a really long time to read. Mm-hmm. You can't read that many books. And it's not like music where you listen to a song and it's, and, and it's over in four minutes and a lot of people can share that experience. I think for a book to catch on, you need to really convince people that they want to spend you know, weeks sometimes Good, spending time should. with it. And, and they should. But Shouldn't be lazy. <laughs> I think you know, we just don't have time to read all of these books that have fallen How many out books of... have you read this year? Uh, uh, since September the 1st last year, I've read 101 books. Oh, I've read them from cover to cover. I finish books because I like them. <laughs> and I have read in the last nine months because if, it, what, is the, what was the point of doing it if not to be able to boast to a room full of people? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I've read... Uh, uh, just one minute, I have to boast about what I've read. Just, just give me one minute. So I've read uh, Life and Fate. Uh, it's 900 pages. I've read Finnegan's Wake by James Joyce from cover to cover, all 626 pages of it, who's counting? Uh, I've read A Brief History of Time from cover to cover. I found a mistake in it. 
I did. I found a mistake in it. There was a mistake in relation to the film Back to the Future. Ah, crucial. And it was on page uh, 212, which indicates how few people read all the way through A Brief History of Time. And um, I've also read, I also read from cover to cover Infinite Jest by David Foster Wallace, and then 97 other books from cover to cover. You should get a PhD for that, my friend. I think so. One, what I learned in one sentence from reading 100 books, that I know more about Back to the Future than Professor Stephen Hawking. <laughs> the so-called clever man, Stephen Hawking, by his own admission. Um, I, I'll give you a serious answer to that if somebody else talks for a moment too. <laughs> to okay. let so, me, so let's um, talk about which are some of us consider terrible. Oh, so oh, go on, give Andy a round of applause. Oh, God, sorry, indulge him. I'm in it for the art. Now, infinite jest has been raised. That brings us on to what people might consider terrible classics. So, Octavia, you start us off with that. I'm just going to slag off Infinite Jest for a few minutes while Andy thinks. Um, Infinite Jest is a book that many, many friends of mine who I love and respect told me to read. They told me I would love it. They told me it would help me become a better writer. They kept being like, you know when people are like, babe, it's just so you, you know? Like, I had you in my head the I whole way through. I said that, didn't I? Yes, you did. Yeah. <laughs> Case in point. Me. Case in point. Luckily, we're still friends. The friendship survived. Um, but yeah, so I was really excited to read it, and I thought, great. And I brought it home, and you know, if you've seen it, it's a big old doorstopper of a, of a thing, which first of all, I think is unbelievably arrogant to expect people to carry around a book that size but that's so different um, <laughs> I like to call David Foster Wallace um, a dick swinger because that is how I consider his He's, he's dead by the way all, <laughs> I, I do believe in speaking ill of the dead if they deserve it No, 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 no. I'm teasing, I'm teasing <laughs> I love, his, I love his other writing, but Infinite Jest, I could not get through it. I tried six different times. I thought it was very clever. I think he's a very clever man. I think he has a good way with words, but I think he does not give a beep about his reader at all, and that bothered me, and I think that, uh, you know, you need to write... Writing, reading, it's a two-way street. If you write with no thought of a reader in mind, what the hell are you doing, you know? Um, and I think that Infinite Jest became such a big deal because people like to show off about it and it became this thing that a particular kind of literary person you know man woman whatever would would bring out as a a thing anyway I I tried again and again and again over a period of 18 months I kept trying I kept thinking I must be missing it and then I had it was like a voice from you know above that just said to me babe you don't have to if you don't want to (laughs) and I was free so so hang on so you Octavia have basically slandered a dead man <laughs> based on not actually having read the book. I got, to, I got about 100 pages in, which I That's think is not enough. A, not even a tenth of the book. No, but I think it's definitely enough to have a sense of it. <laughs> it's I more if you just count the footnotes. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. That's true. But also, honestly, and this is like a bit of a silly thing, but as an academic, I have to read an enormous amount for my studies. And that's the stuff that I have to read. You know, Mm -hmm. even if I don't like it, I have to read it. So when I'm reading for pleasure, I used to always feel that you had to, out of kind of honor bound, to finish a book, you know, before you had an opinion about it. And Infinite Jazz changed that for me. (laughs) No, but I mean it. I I really. Andy's making a face like he feels. Quite differently about no, I've just spent like two years going around the country shouting at people about why they should finish books. 
And uh, I, I was thinking to myself while Octavia was talking, I can't do it again. I've already done it at Stoke Newington twice. I can't, I can't come back for three bites of the cherry. About, I, my feeling is, in a nutshell, is that um, you ought to read books the whole way through if you can, because uh, the experience that they offer you, uh, that you were talking about, Carrie, about, you know, uh, they do take longer to read, but they also give you more space to walk around in. And uh, also, you know, some of these long books are written by people who were not, I'm not hyping this word, were literally geniuses. You know, if you read Middlemarch, I'm always saying this, but if you read Middlemarch and you don't like Middlemarch, that isn't Middlemarch's fault. No, that is your not. fault, and you need to try harder. Right? <laughs> we have very, very different opinions we about do. reading. This is kind of crazy. I mean, I, I thought Infinite... Did you, you've read Infinite Jest. I, right? I love Infinite Jest. But I, I get it. I get that he's very annoying. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's a, he beca- one of the main characters is named Hal, and Hal is a, a show-off. He's a performative show-off, an intelligent show-off, and that's what David Foster Wallace is. And yeah. he doesn't mm-hmm. hide that, but I think that's part of the project. It's, yeah. this, it's this project of maximalism. That's why the book is long. That's why the words are long. Yeah. That's why everything is long. And I think I can, I can completely understand why somebody wouldn't like the book, and yet that, I loved it. I thought it was quite good. <laughs> <laughs> I've never read it. There you go. We're lined up in order. It's perfect. (laughs) Carrie, a a so-called classic that you hate. Classic that I hate. Oh, there are so many. Um, The Mayor of Casterbridge by Thomas Hardy. Oh, good choice. I I did read this. It was a summer reading assignment when I was 14 years old. And every single chapter, we had a list of questions that we had to answer about the book. So when you finished a chapter, it was like, why did the mayor of Casterbridge decide to leave Casterbridge? Why? So I think that contributed to it. But I just find, I, I think Hardy's a bore. He writes, he writes too much about the landscape. I'm not interested. I, see, I know you're, you're all going to hate me now, but I just, I, I think he's, uh, he's allowed to be indulgent, and I don't see the point. Sticking it to Thomas Hardy. <laughs> um, Andy, one book, one, one book. Well, I'm just going to say about oral. Thomas Hardy. I want to say this about Thomas Hardy, actually. I went to a really interesting talk last year at the British Library to do with the Folio Prize mm. about wit, about the uses of wit in literature. And the panel there were talking about, they were saying, well, everyone kind of uses wit, don't they, in their writing? You know, who does? If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. 
For full important safety information, visit juviderm.com. Since 2013, Bombus has donated over 100 million socks, underwear and t-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombus donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombus.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. What author doesn't use wit? And somebody said, oh, wait a minute, Hardy. It's true. It's the, I don't like Hardy it's, either. Yeah, it's, it's, it's pastoral escapism, but if you're not interested in that, then <laughs> what, what else is there for you? I like Tess of the Durbervilles. Yeah, just for the record. Okay. Uh, well, uh, yeah, uh, what, what, class, what classic... Well, everyone's going to hate me for this, but yeah. I've never finished a book by Dickens. Never <gasps> managed to. I just found them so overwritten and mm. hard work and boring, unfortunately. I know it's terrible, I know, and it, it's, it's an awful thing to say, but... But yeah, it's so interesting well. that, that you have that attitude mm-hmm. because that, that plays into this whole idea of classics that we should yeah. be embarrassed about the books that we mm-hmm. don't like. Maybe we should be celebrating the books we don't no, like. No, you see, okay, I do... No, no. <laughs> see, we've got to bring this to a close. Um, I feel... You both, what we've all been talking about is the canon, what the canon represents, and I feel very strongly that there is an interesting reaction against the canon which stops people reading the books from the canon because they think, ah, oh, well, you know, what matters is my opinion. I know better than, I don't know, Dickens, right? Dickens has failed to entertain me. Right? I don't get that. I think, no, Dickens is a figure with a track record of millions of readers and social and historical importance. No, absolutely, well, I agree with that, but I just wasn't good enough for Dickens. It wasn't the Dickens... Ah, now you say it. Yeah. That's true, I, I, yeah. I'm happy to admit that. Oh. I failed at the Dickens test. <laughs> oh, no, I disagree. <laughs> I don't think you failed anything at all. I think Dickens... I mean, Dickens... I don't love Dickens either, and I have only read to the end one Dickens because, I, you know, it was GCSE English. It was on my canonical <laughs> list of books yeah. to read. Um, I think yeah. Dickens is an extraordinary social commentator. Mm-hmm. I've read passages from many of his books, and I think they're wonderful historical artifacts, but I don't find the narratives particularly interesting. However, I do find myself saying what larks a lot, so obviously it's sunk <laughs> in, you know? I, I, well, I love Dickens. I love, I, you know, I'm not putting this on. I've read all the novels of Charles Dickens, including the one he didn't finish. Mm-hmm. I think Bleak House <laughs> is one of the most brilliant, brilliantly written, brilliantly structured, brilliantly historically important, wonderful novel, also quite good. Saying quite good quite a lot. Um, so I, I, I totally understand where you're coming from, Neil. You know, you, you either connect with a writer or you don't connect with them. Um, but I, I increasingly find that, that thing of, well, if I don't connect with someone, I want to understand why I don't connect with them. There's only really one book that I just think isn't worth reading. And that's um, 
100 Years of Solitude by Gabriel Garcia Marquez. <laughs> it's terrible, Burn. isn't it? People are booing it so bad. Burn. Right? It's such Burn. a bad book, isn't it? Such a bad book, 100 Years of Solitude. It's like, um, it's like a chimp on a bike, isn't it? Going round and round in a little circle, puffing on a cigar, until it disappears up its own magical realist arse. You, we've just been heckled. We right. have just been heckled. Actually, the thing is, I'm fascinated by 100 Years of Solitude. It's a book that I didn't really like, but I talk about it quite a lot when I go out and talk about things like this, because what always happens is what just happened then. That the way people feel about 100 Years of Solitude, they feel it's really precious. It's like mm -hmm. a little wren <laughs> that they're, they're holding to their hearts. And I just think well, it's only a book, isn't it? It's only a book. But if it's it's only, only your opinion, it's only my opinion. If it's only our opinion, then isn't it okay not to finish books if we don't want to? No, because... Uh, <laughs> uh, because It's only a book. You and I are presuming to express those opinions publicly, and therefore we should do the artist the respect of, of taking in their whole work. You wouldn't look at a picture by Picasso and critique it based on one corner. I, I do would. tend to look at them like that, though, before I cover it over. Yeah. All right, I'll give Bleak House a go, then. Hey! Has great. it got songs in it? Like Oliver Twist? <laughs> <laughs> like Oliver Twist. Yeah. Okay, so... <laughs> now I've um, mortally embarrassed myself in front of a, a literary festival audience, I want all the panel to tell us one book, one classic book that they're embarrassed to say they've never read. I have never read Wuthering Heights. <laughs> I am so sorry. <laughs> but I do know the song. I know the song. I love the song. <laughs> I have also fantasized about Heathcliff. So, you know, like, these characters, they live. They sing and they fly and they come out of the book and they exist in the world and in everyone's imagination. So, you know, and there one, we go. And one book. Uh, I've never read... Uh, Lionel Shriver's We Need to Talk About Kevin. Oversight. And I never shall. <laughs> I can just pick up an opinion from the ether. From, I can get a contact opin opinion from all you people. <laughs> um, I, I just felt, I just, I just, I just, I have some mental block with that book. I don't know why. Mm -hmm. I can't go into it unprejudiced. Mm. Why that book? That's okay. I forgive you. Um, well, I don't really feel embarrassed about not having read books. There are so many books. Pretend for the sake of this. <laughs> forum. Um, I, I haven't read anything by Philip Roth. Mm. That's an interesting. It's interesting because yeah. you badmouthed Philip Roth earlier on I by know. saying that Stoner was better. Yeah. I, well, I've read. I've started a few books by Philip Roth, but I've never finish them um, and uh, I, I feel I really I keep people keep telling me to read Philip Roth and I just I can't I wonder if it's something to do with cultural fetishism though because I love I've read The Human Stain that's the only Roth I've read and I found it completely gripping because it was like a window into something that is not familiar to me and you know you're not being a fan of certain kind of pastoral English literature do you know what I mean there's like a different yeah. there's a cultural disconnect sometimes I think and a cultural attraction as well. So, earlier on, I think somebody mentioned sales in terms of how a book might be considered a classic. So I wanted to talk about, you know, bestsellers. 
and whether or not something being a bestseller confers some sort of classic status on it. And I guess the question would be, is Fifty Shades of Grey a classic book? Oh, my God. (laughs) This book comes up all the time in conversation with me because I write about desire and eroticism in my academic work. Um, No, no, no. (laughs) In no way does that constitute a classic of any kind. It's a phenomenon which is very different. I I think it is a phenomenon. I think it's very telling of uh, cultural status of gender politics that it's a phenomenon. Um, And I have read a bit of it, mm-hmm. and then I put it down and thought, my life must go on without this. Um, I think it's great that people loved it. I think, it's, I think you can love whatever you, whatever you like, especially when it comes to erotic literature and desire. You, know? you can't politicise it. Everyone's is different. But I think, no, I think, I think just because it was so widely read doesn't make it a classic. Because I w- actually, thinking as everyone else was talking, something that has to come into something be classified as, classified as a classic is talent and skill (laughs) with language and the thing is Fifty Shades of Grey has absolutely no skill or no and no talent of language none I mean it's linguistically poor it's grammatically incorrect often um so no and and that's been no barrier to its massive success yeah yeah yeah. which is totally fine but no it's not ever going to be a classic in my Mm -hmm. humble opinion um I haven't read Fifty Shades of Grey my fear are you embarrassed about that no My feeling is that Fifty Shades of Grey came along, as these books do, at like ten-year intervals, to make you feel better about the last one. So Fifty Shades of Grey came along to make you feel better about the Da Vinci Code. (laughs) Right? Uh, I have written about Dan Brown at some length. Um, I just read another Dan Brown, actually, called Inferno. Have any of you read Dan Brown's Inferno? I have read Dan Brown's Inferno. Have you? you? This is starting to feel like a therapy session. Did you finish it? (laughs) I did finish it <laughs> in about three hours. Yeah. I loved it. I mean, I hate, I hate him, but I love the books. I read them. It's like eating a hamburger and then throwing it up afterwards, you know? <laughs> no, it won't be a classic. I, 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 how, could, can you imagine it being set on syllabi, um, <laughs> except for some sort of... Uh, um, Anthropology. Yeah, yeah, yeah I think it's, 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 it's exactly yeah, what Octavia course. says. It's, mm. it's interesting because it's a cultural phenomenon, mm-hmm. and it says something very profound about us and how we think and um, sex and all of these things, but um, it, it, I mean, do you read it for anything more than that? I think a mm-hmm. classic has to be elevated above that. It has to say something very deep and profound about the human spirit. Um, sorry, to, 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 I really do feel that way about literature still. I, mm-hmm. I, I, I really think novels especially have, have something very profound to say about who we are, and, and I don't think Fifty Shades of Grey really takes that box. Well, <laughs> perhaps, okay, the next bit, we're not going to quite attain that high, but I want to talk about this idea of good, bad books. I think it was it Chesterton who came up with this idea of, mm, of the good, bad right. book, and he meant, like, Arthur Conan Doyle or, or Woodhouse, yeah. which none of us would consider to be good, bad, good, bad books nowadays, of course. But what would be, Carol, we'll start with you at that end again, what would be a good, bad book now, do you think? I think Dan Brown is a great example. Mm-hmm. Um, super thrilling, exciting book to read. I think a lot of books that are being published right now that are in the psychological suspense 
genre. So Girl on a Train, which has been, you know, the top of the bestseller mm -hmm. list and, and other books like it. I don't think those are going to live um, into the future, but I think they're very enjoyable to read. Um, and, and, I, and I think books, especially that follow, it's interesting that you mentioned Sherlock Holmes because I think books that follow that really satisfying arc of a detective story, um, these psychological suspense novels are, are in some ways just an iteration of Sherlock Holmes. And they're incredibly, they're incredibly pleasurable to read and I'm, I'm always happy to sit down on a beach and whip my way through them. I, I'm, not, I'm going to win no friends for saying this, but when <laughs> Neil tipped me off that he was going to ask me this question, I was trying to think who, who falls into the category of good, bad books. I, I, I think someone who wrote good, some good, bad books and some good, good books, but quite a few good, bad books, was J.G. Ballard. Mm, like, I read High Rise quite recently. Now, High Rise is a really interesting book. I think that's, a, that's pulp, High Rise. It's, it's come to be thought of as high literature, but actually going back to it and reading it again and looking how it was published and what was on the cover and all those things, it's clearly written fast. It's written to be sensational. Um, that's not to say it doesn't have ideas in it, but it's fundamentally taking genre, kind of quite pulpy 70s sci-fi, and trying to do something interesting with it, which is fine, right? I also think Ballard wrote fantastic, other much more interesting books. But... Um, yeah, so for me, it's that kind of, can you take a form, subvert it? I mean, yeah, I don't know. I, 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 we, did, we did Raymond Chandler on um, Batlisted quite recently, and actually Chandler almost, Chandler almost fits that category. Mm -hmm. You know, he's taking hard-boiled pulp and turning it into poetry. Uh, far, far elevating... The, the source material into something completely different, you know? That's what I think. Elevating source material. Um, I think Julie Cooper's a great example. I think she's a phenomenal writer. I disagree heartily with a lot of the gender politics of her books, but they're, you know, they're great artifacts. There's one actually called Octavia, and um, we're not very similar. <laughs> uh, she's a man-eater, so really very different. Oh, but, um, is, is that...? No. Carrie! <laughs> I say that outrageous, with love. Outrageous. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think Julie Cooper's excellent. And I think that she, um, her books are kind of cultural artifacts from the time they were written. They observe eight, the 80s kind of energy of mm. like that yuppie, money, sexy, horsey thing. Um, so yeah, she, I, would, I would go with Julie Cooper. Mm -hmm. But also, I should quickly say, I am a completely avid reader of thrillers. I love them. And I consume them very quickly. And I, I love the Elizabeth Salander uh, trilogy. It was like reading, uh, like a car crash kind of reading experience. But I thought they were fantastic. What, do you, what about you, Neil? What's the... What would I consider a good bad book? Um, you see, I don't read that many thrillers. Again, because mainly because I, I just don't have time to read anything that's not a little Adams book. But I would say like something like yeah, something like Dan Brown or something. Because I think the key thing here is that it's like we were talking before about your bestseller idea. Is it actually that? Dan Brown book, or the John Patterson book, or the Lee Child book, mm. are actually really, really, really hard to do. They sound like these massive bestsellers, but they've all come up with some great formula or something to do that. Yeah. And I think there's something to be said about, you know, those guys being, like, not classic books, but certainly some kind of genius. I had a... Um, I, I was doing a literary festival a couple of years ago with someone who had been the chair of the Booker Prize judges... 
uh, the year before and had had to read, you know, 200 novels or something. But, and was clearly very well briefed in, in what excellent fiction was available out there. A real intellectual. And I said to him, well, what, what should I, what should I, I need to, something for the tra train home, what should I read? And he said, Lee Child. I said, okay, which one? He said, doesn't matter. <laughs> They're all the same. They're all great. You know, they, he's found that magic combination of plot, style, you know, um, and feel as well. That's the thing. I think that's the thing that people often buy into. Yeah. The feel of a book, which is why it's so hard to reproduce it, which is why we can't just go home and write one. You know? And a lot of the time, I think authors don't even realise they're doing it. They're trying to write as, as exciting and good a book as they can. Mm -hmm. But, you know, Dan Brown is a really interesting example of this. Like, the reason why people love Dan Brown's books are, is probably not why he thinks they do. Yeah. <laughs> you know, the, there's, the character that comes through those books is not um, admirable, but is, is amiably silly. But people like that. People, think, people feel they're being entertained and they're having fun, you know, so, which is great. We've got about 10 minutes left, so I'm going to ask if there's any questions, and immediately, the gentleman over there on the left has got his hand up. It's nice to have some lentils, said the man in Stone Newington. <laughs> I think it depends what you take pleasure in. I take great pleasure in challenge. So for me, a book that I really enjoy. Well, there's about the Jilly Coopers. No, I don't find them challenging at all, and I really enjoy them. Yeah. Oh, he's got me. He's got me by the short and curlies. <laughs> I think what you're getting at, if I'm right, is the kind of um, what, mo what novels were essentially meant to be at the beginning was moral instruction, right? That was the idea. They were, no, not necessarily what you're saying, but just that, that that's like the, ca the counterbalance to we should read for enjoyment is we should read for education and we should read for understanding. And who decides what is lentils and who decides what is hamburger? That's that I have the issue with there. Nutritional because... expert. 
I agree with you that you, you know, if you only eat hamburgers, you'll get sick, and that you do need lentils. And but. But what, yeah, what's the, what is the lentils of literature? I don't know. And for me, my politics and the way that I've come up through my reading and things um, means that I have to be inherently raised eyebrow about that because we come out of patriarchy. So the canon is completely co-opted by patriarchal structures. Mm. No, 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 I know you didn't, but, but I think that they're related. I'll let someone else jump in there as well. Yeah. I, I, well, I slightly, I, I respectfully disagree with my colleague Because I think that um, we live in an era, don't we, where consumerism encourages you to say, I like this or I don't like that. That your role as the consumer is to um, have an opinion, buy something, you know, decide quickly whether you enjoyed it or not. And actually, um, when you apply those things to, to continue this metaphor to McDonald's, that's fine, because McDonald's is a product that's, enti- that's, that's created to be consumed in that way. But when you, if you apply that to Dickens, or you apply it to George Eliot, you know, you're not, there was a brilliant piece by Eleanor Catton, mm. the author of The Luminaries, making yeah. just this point, saying things aren't all meant to be consumed in the same way. They aren't meant yeah. to be whizzed through, and they aren't meant to be snapped up. And actually consumerism and art are not always compatible. And my feeling, as this gentleman was saying, is that you can read whatever you want, but as soon as you fall into a pattern of reading what you like because it's what you like, then you're, you're heading down a hole. And you need to challenge yourself so that you remain open all the time. Certainly as you get older, so you remain open to new types of book and new types of voice and new types of reading that you might not be comfortable with. You've got to push through that. I, 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 reading for pleasure, that's fine. That's a good thing. That's fun. But it's not the only reason to read something. Carrie, have you got a... Well, I, do, I just don't think that Octavia was saying that she Thanks, only babe. reads for pleasure. I mean, no. I, I... We're... <laughs> I, we've been friends for a long time, and you read, uh, out of almost anyone I know, some of the most difficult stuff. And stuff that you no, you're not always like, oh, yeah. <laughs> um, but I think uh, maybe the argument that underneath the surface here gets back to this idea of what is a classic. And mm. I, I suppose what, what I am reading into what Octavia is saying is that... Um, how do you decide what to read, first of all? Because there are so many books that you have to read, and, and you could say, okay, I'm going to read these books that the modern library has said are the best lentils. Um, and, and once I've had these lentils, I'll, I'll have a really firm idea of what healthy food is. But, but actually, there, there are so many other books in the world, and, and many of the books that are considered classics are, are considered that because a lot of white men sitting in a room decided that they should be that way. So... I think you should challenge yourself, but um, but be uh, skeptical of Who's who who is recommending you books and <laughs> mm-hmm. and why and which books you should challenge yourself with and which you that maybe don't need to be read or regarded or or at less or or they should be read but with a very skeptical eye in the first place. Just a quick interjection from Robin on the question of what classic books does he hate. His answer was Villette, but I bet that was my fault. So I think we will always with that answer. <laughs> um, can we have one more question? Rachel. Can you elaborate on um, being very open to reading 
I have, to, I have to say, to be, to be, I mean, I love, my favourite living writer is Michelle Huelbeck. I love Tolstoy, you know, I, I love Chekhov. I, I mean, but, and, but uh, there's a brilliant book that was published last year by a writer called Anne Morgan called Reading the World, where um, it was based on a blog where she tried to, uh, in a year, read one book from every country in the world. And the point that she, and, it, and which sounds like a bit of a lark, but actually the book is very serious and very interesting in terms of what it says about how few books that would be considered very famous and important in other parts of the world uh, never make it into English. And I've got a really um, recent example of this. Uh, I went to Iceland a couple of months ago for a, for a week, and before I went, I asked people to recommend me books, great books, great Icelandic novels. And um, several people recommended uh, a book called Fish Can Sing by Haldor Laxness, which I read before I went. It's absolutely magnificent. And the two things to say about that are I subsequently discovered that, that vast numbers of Haldor Laxness' novels have never been translated into English. He won the Nobel Prize for fiction in 1955, incidentally. And the other thing is um, we got a cab in Reykjavik, and the guy driving us said... Uh, uh, so what, 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 what sort of things are you here for? I said, I'm really interested in books. Uh, I've just read, um, he said, uh, I said, I've just read a novel by Haldor Laxness. He said, you are the first person I've had in this cab of 20 years who speaks English and has read Haldor Laxness. More than that, you are the first person I've ever had in this cab who's even heard of Haldor Laxness. Right? So your point, is, your point is good. I think you have to constantly be be looking for these books and trying to find them out and looking at publishers like Pushkin, for instance. Yeah, they do. You know, the stuff that Pushkin mm, does well, is brilliant. Well, from, from an industry perspective, I, I, that is very true. Um, compared to other nations around the world and European nations as well, there's much less translated into English than there is English literature translated into other countries. And we see that in terms of the foreign rights we sell. Um, but it's really, I think um, there was an article in The Guardian the other day where um, translated fiction from other countries has actually outsold yeah, British right. fiction. And I think right. that's partially because of outliers like Ferrante mm. and Carla Van Ausgaard and things like that. But um, I, I've, I've got the sense recently in the book industry that English language readers are really starting to pay attention to mm. um, to to authors from many, many different countries. Um, and I, it was also, I was at a Hay Festival this past weekend, and I went to a talk by a, a, a few um, Spanish-speaking writers from Mexico and um, Spain, and all of their books were so bonkers. You know, it's, um, one of them was uh, Valeria Louis, Louis sorry. I can't, I can't remember exactly how to pronounce her last name, but she wrote a book called The Autobiography of My Teeth. Um, and it's sort of about this auctioneer who's auctioning off her teeth, and she wrote it because she was corresponding with all of these factory workers. And, um, and I thought, do you know, that 
we're so wedded to realism in, in English language fiction, and there are so many more interesting books um, where, where this was totally normal. Like, they're, they're always, and another author, Alvaro Enrique, who is actually married to her, uh, wrote a book about Caravaggio and a Mexican poet whose name I forget, playing a game of real tennis with a ball made of Anne Boleyn's hair. Um, and just sitting there and listening to them talk about these novels, I, 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 was, I, inst I instantly went out and bought their books and thought, I need to read more in translation because there's a whole world of fiction that I'm not exposed to. I just want to say quickly, because I, I read in Spanish and French as well, and the thing about translation that is difficult is there are very bad translations out there, and it's devastating when you come across that. So it's super important, but at the same time, there is... You know, I mean, I'm on a personal crusade to get people to keep doing languages at school so that they can enter other cultures directly rather than being mediated. Because there's a political question as well in translation. It's, it's surrounded by a lot of politics. Um, linguistic politics, cultural politics, what gets chosen, what gets left behind, all of that. So it's super complex. But I, I, I do think that what Carrie was saying is right, that you see people having greater interest in writers from other countries and it, you can see it reflected in television as well you know on channel four they've got the walter presents and people are watching um series with subtitles more than they ever were i mean when i was a child that was never on television and obviously very topical with the eu staying in question um but yeah i think you're absolutely right it's really important to, to a point a really important point to raise and it is true again when we get start talking about canonical stuff we are talking about english language literature mm. largely okay. We're going to have to wrap up. We're, we're out of time. So before I ask you to thank the panel, um, at the back of the room, both Andy's uh, The Year of Reading Dangerously and Robin Insee's Bad Book Club are at the back. Andy will sign. I've had a text from Robin to say that he is now in Stoke Newington. Oh my so God. if you're buying Robin's book, he'll sign it for you. He's on his way. Um, there's also copies of the Little Atoms magazine which no doubt I can get, um, as well as myself, Octavia and Carrie to sign as they don't have books. Um, so please put your hands together for Octavia Bright, Andy Miller and Carrie Bright. And for Neil. Thank yeah, you, thank Neil. you, Neil. You've been listening to Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by Neil Denny and was broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. The show is supported by 89up and hosted by Positive Internet. You can follow the show on Twitter at Little Atoms. You can find old interviews, new journalism and more on our relaunch website, littleatoms.com. Thanks for listening. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. 
Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.